Uh, it's actually a great uh, pleasure to be here to see a lot of old friends and to use this as an opportunity to get to know um, some new friends. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the major findings of overcoming apartheid, Can Truth Reconcile a Divided Nation? This book is actually the second in what I call the Overcoming Trilogy. The uh, first, uh, as Rick mentioned, was Overcoming Intolerance in South Africa, uh, published by Cambridge in 03 and just republished in paperback this year. You're going to hear about Overcoming Apartheid, Can Truth uh, Reconcile a Divided Nation Today? And I'm currently working on a book that uh, is going to be entitled something like overcoming historical injustices, and it's about how ordinary people adjudicate conflicts over a contemporary and historical justice claims in the context of uh, land dispossessions in South Africa. Now, I thought a little bit about why I'm sort of stuck in this overcoming route, rut, I should say, um, overcoming this and overcoming that, and I, I can only attribute these titles to my days in Atlanta in the civil rights movement when I must have sung We Shall Overcome so many times that it just sort of got imprinted on my, uh, my brain. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the book, but I also want to move beyond the book and tell you about some papers that have come after the book that think more generally about processes of transitional justice and uh, democratization. Now, maybe I should begin with a word about the intellectual origins of this project, because after all, um, my first book was on Nazis attempting to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois. Uh, much of my life has been devoted to democratization in Russia and the former Soviet Union, and now I'm talking to you about truth and reconciliation in South Africa. So it may seem that th this is a pretty disparate research agenda. But I actually see a lot of important connective tissue across these uh, projects. And of course, the thread is the concern for how ordinary people think about politics, uh, the beliefs, preferences, values, and behavioral orientations they hold uh, about politics and uh, policy outcomes. Uh, obviously, it's research grounded in political culture. I actually have done a lot of uh, work on this question in uh, the former Soviet Union. It's a great place to look at cultural uh, impacts on uh, politics because many Sovietologists would argue that democracy will fail in the former Soviet Union, and it'll fail because of a thousand years of cultural authoritarianism. Uh, many would argue that Bolshevism was simply the latest manifestation of those cultural values. Turns out that we believe that that's absolutely incorrect. We uh, uh, believe that the Russian people in particular have become fairly strongly committed to democracy, if not to a market economy. Uh, and if anything, the threat in Russia is actually from elites, not from the ordinary people. But it's this line of research that suggests that political changes and political transformations depend mightily upon the values and orientations of ordinary people. So in South Africa, the question becomes first whether South Africans are sufficiently reconciled that democratic institutions, excuse me, can flourish and take root in the country. And then secondly, the more analytical question is does truth 
by which I mean the production of a collective memory for society, does truth contribute to reconciliation? Now, I, I must confess that I've become quite taken by South Africa. Um, I don't, uh, I, I tell NSF my interests have nothing to do with my love of red wine or cultural diversity or beaches or mountains or animals or any of that. But the truth is I fell in love with South Africa. I never fell in love with Russia. Russia's a hard one to love, I think. Uh, maybe we can fight about that, but it's a hard country for me. In truth, South Africa is a wonderful uh, laboratory for uh, understanding and analyzing political change. It's a system that has changed rapidly. It's a multicultural system. It's a system in which the first world meets the third world. And so it's therefore not surprising that I've committed so much of my research agenda uh, to the country. <clears throat> now, I should interject that the conventional wisdom is that South Africa has no chance of successful democratization. <laughs> And I say that because we have fairly well-developed uh, quantitative models of the success of democratization. And as it turns out, there are about three and a half variables that are powerful predictors. The first is wealth. And South Africa, though not a very, very poor country, does not have a great deal of, of uh, wealth uh, in comparison to first, first world countries. The second is inequality. Inequality makes democratization difficult. And you might know that South Africa vies with Brazil and sometimes the United States for the uh, highest score on the Gini index of inequality. The third variable that predicts the success is, is a cultural homogeneity. This is one of the most unpleasant findings for me personally from the literature, and that is that a homogeneous culture has a great deal more uh, likelihood of successful democratization than a heterogeneous one. Well, of course, South Africa has 11 national languages and four major racial, ethnic, linguistic groups, so it doesn't do well on that score either. And then the variable that I, that I call kind of the half variable is actually influential, and that is the simple variable, have you ever been British? <laughs> and if you have, you've got a better chance. Oh, well, unfortunately, South Africa only gets half credit on the half variable because it's only half British. So uh, one uh, can look at the country and be pretty pessimistic in the beginning. On the other hand, we've just been through or recently been through the 10-year anniversary of democracy in uh, South Africa. You probably remember this, or you may remember this uh, picture. It was on the front page of the New York Times in April of 1994, and it depicts uh, people queuing to vote in the first democratic election ever in South Africa. Uh, I actually bought the picture and used it on a brochure I did for the National Science Foundation some years ago. But it's a, a powerful a testament to the growth of democracy in the country. And indeed, after 10 years, many people are pointing to South Africa and proclaiming a miracle. The South African case is miraculous because the transition succeeded and it did so without bloodshed. Well, that's not true. It did so without a bloodbath, I should say. So uh, it's also a miracle in part because it wasn't predicted. This is a table that shows your uh, former colleagues um, uh, analysis of expert predictions 
on uh, the uh, future of the Soviet Union and the future of South Africa. This is Phil Tetlock um, from a paper he published. In a, uh, I don't know if Phil's book, new book is out yet, but it's, it is okay. And you can see in here that, that South Africa was not expected by the experts. It was not expected to be able to, um, to um, have a successful transition with the majority being inaccurate in their predict, uh, predictions after the, uh, for the future of the country. So a decade after the first democratic elections, people are saying, why? How did this happen? What can we learn from it? And many people are pointing to the truth and reconciliation process as something of the answer to the success of the transition. So my uh, research specifically focuses on the question of whether truth and reconciliation have contributed to democracy in the country's first decade. Now, we have to start with the objectives of the truth and reconciliation process. And most of y'all probably know something about amnesty. The commission was empowered to grant amnesty to those who came forward and grant, uh, admitted uh, gross human rights uh, violations. But the commission actually had a much larger mandate. By law, the goal of the commission uh, uh, shall be to promote national unity and reconciliation in a spirit of understanding which transcends the conflicts and divisions of the past. The TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, actually took this mandate seriously and sought to transform South African society. So most of what you think about amnesty, you probably ought to put out of your mind because the primary activity of the commission was societal transformation. That's, of course, a pretty tall order. And indeed, there's sort of a mini theory, not a very sophisticated one, but a mini theory of um, of uh, democratic reform, uh, the, commission, the law assumed that if you provide amnesty, it'll generate truth. If you generate truth, it'll contribute to reconciliation, and reconciliation is an important contributor to the success of uh, democratic forms, uh, reforms. So I actually treat this sort of simple-minded process as a series of hypotheses that are amenable to empirical work and, in fact, try to uh, test them. Now, people in South Africa are pretty pessimistic about the TRC. Here's a book of cartoons. Um, it's actually a delightful little book, and this is the cover of it. <clears throat> Let's see, is there a, a pointer? I think I one here. Uh, this is, uh, depicts a place on the top of Table Mountain. And there's a point on Table Mountain where you walk out there and you expect to be able to cross over to the other side, but you can't because there's a big gorge there. Uh, you can't, probably can't see it very well, but uh, this is, is Tutu right here, who's the head of the commission. And behind him are the victims. You can always tell a South African a police officer with that great big chin. Uh, and then, of course, the media. And the dominant view in South Africa was that the commission did a pretty good job at uncovering truth. But to cross the crevice, the precipice from truth to reconciliation is impossible. Indeed, many people in South Africa argue that truth most likely embitters. It doesn't lead to reconciliation. It makes people more bitter and makes uh, reconciliation uh, less uh, possible. So especially when the world is copying the South African process, I think it's very important to investigate the hypothesis that truth leads to reconciliation. Thank you.
So let me begin with the meaning of truth. You know, that's not actually a bad title. Maybe my next book ought to be The Meaning of Truth by James Gibson. Would would you all buy that? (laughs) But I don't actually mean that kind of truth. I mean the truth as promulgated by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I mean the collective memory that the commission tried uh, to produce and, indeed, the collective memory that it codified in a a seven-volume report. So when I talk about truth, I'm trying to look at the degree to which South Africans embrace the conclusions of the uh, TRC. That's a question that's best addressed through uh, survey data. And you can see here a description of the survey, a fairly large and quite expensive project, uh, eight languages, focus groups, uh, nationally representative uh, sample uh, done in 0102. The important thing about this, though, and this is something that you, you must keep in mind, this is a study of ordinary people. It's not a study of activists. It's not a study of victims. It's not a study of perpetrators. In any given society, the mass of people are bystanders. I argue that this is important because when one attempts societal transformation, one has to talk to ordinary people in society. But a lot of people don't like my findings, and they don't like the findings because they don't speak to victims and perpetrators. You have to bear in mind that it's a representative sample of um, ordinary South Africans. Now, what do I mean by truth? It's fairly simple. uh, I put questions to people, and I said, do you all view these as true or false? And the first is apartheid was a crime against humanity. The second is uh, there were certainly some abuses under the old apartheid system, but the ideas behind apartheid were uh, basically good ones. And then the third is both those struggling for and those struggling against the old apartheid system did unforgivable things to people. I've indicated after the statements what I view as the TRC's position on that. They thought it was a crime against humanity, uh, ideas are not good, and they argued that all sides did unforgivable things. This may surprise you a little bit. This is the responses to the first uh, statement. You can see that virtually all black people in South Africa agree that apartheid was a crime against humanity. It's perhaps interesting that three-quarters of the whites also agree that apartheid was a crime against humanity. But have a look at these figures. These are startling figures, I believe. Over a third of blacks believe that despite abuses, the ideas behind apartheid were good ones. Now, that's a a figure that's actually given me a great deal of pause. I've tried to figure out what exactly people were uh, thinking when they answered that question. So I started thinking, what would Steve Biko have said to this statement? What would the Pan-Africanist Congress say to this statement? What they would say is that we believe in separate development. The, The definition of apartheid is separate development. I don't think blacks are uh, at all endorsing racial hierarchy or subjugation or anything like that. But I do think that there is a substantial constituency for separate development, for the separation of blacks and whites. And therefore, apartheid is not as universally and unequivocally condemned as might be the case. And then the final one is that three-fourths of both groups agree that uh, those struggling for and against apartheid uh, did um, unforgivable things. 
So you can see that there, there is some agreement that apartheid in principle is an undesirable um, a system, but not everyone sees it as entirely evil, and uh, their uh, racial separation still has a, a considerable constituency. Perhaps the most optimistic finding from this part of the research is the following. This is an index of uh, the degree to which each group embraces the collective memory produced by the TRC. And the important thing about this figure is that the differences across race are minor to trivial. The median for all three is three. Um, and so what this seems to uh, imply is despite the experiences that people had under the old apartheid system, in fact, views of the past do not differ markedly across the various racial groups in South Africa. Well, you're probably going to complain about truth, but reconciliation is an even a more difficult concept. Indeed, I think of reconciliation as a meta-concept involving four different major uh, dimensions. The first is interracial reconciliation, by which I mean intergroup trust, uh, rejection of stereotypes, prejudice, all of that kind of stuff. I also mean the development of a, a culture supportive of human rights, an explicit uh, charge of the law creating the commission was to create a culture supportive of human rights. Many of you all know me, and if you do, you know I couldn't possibly leave out political tolerance, given I've worked for 30 years on it, and I've also worked for 30 years on institutional legitimacy. So these are all uh, elements of a syndrome that I call reconciliation, and each of them represents a, um, a different uh, chapter in the book. These are complicated measures, maybe 40, 50 questions on the survey. So I won't go into details uh, on how they're measured, but I will give you some summary uh, results. This is a, a, um, an overall index across all four of these, and it is the percentage of people uh, who score as at least somewhat reconciled. And I know it's not all that easy to read. For um, colored people, 59% score is at least uh, somewhat reconciled, a majority. Same is true for whites, 55%. Same is almost true for those of Asian origin, Indian people, at 48%. And then you can see down here that blacks are significantly less reconciled at only uh, 33%. Uh, and obviously that's not surprising given that blacks, of course, were the primary victims of the old apartheid uh, system. If you put all this back together, and with the caveat that survey research is especially weak at generating point estimates, which I accept all of that, one finds that about 44% of uh, South Africans in 2001 scored as at least somewhat reconciled. That, I think, is an amazing figure. I don't think any of Tetlock's experts would have predicted that level of reconciliation after 50 years of governance by the apartheid system. Now, the big question, and the one you've all been waiting for, is does truth lead to reconciliation? And, you know, at some level it clearly did, right? Uh, the violence, there, was, there were more political deaths from 1990 to 1994 than ever before, than all of the other years in the history of South Africa. 
that violence ended. Black majority rule has been a successful. The uh, rights of the white minority have not been trampled upon. There uh, have been uh, only minor land grabs. Uh, the problems of Zimbabwe and now uh, Namibia on uh, land have not materialized in South Africa. So in some ways, something clearly worked because the system transformed. But there's more rigorous data. These are bivariate correlation coefficients, and they indicate the degree to which uh, participation in this collective memory is associated with scores on the reconciliation index. And you can see that there's a, a modest relationship for Africans, a fairly strong relationship for white people, pretty good relationship for colored people, and a much weaker relationship for, um, for uh, Indian people, those of Asian origin. So whatever we understand about causality, these coefficients are not negative. And by that I mean there is not a shred of evidence to suggest in any group that truth has contributed to irreconciliation. Whatever the causality and whatever the variability and the strength of the coefficients, all of them are positive, and I think that's a fairly important uh, finding. Now, especially the graduate students in the room ought to be thinking, well, you know, 10 to 1, he's got it wrong. 10 to 1, reconciliation causes truth, not that truth causes reconciliation. 10 to 1, the people who were already reconciled and predisposed toward reconciliation we're much more likely to listen to the commission and embrace its truth. So unpacking the reciprocal causation is a question of considerable theoretical uh, importance, and uh, it's something uh, I've tried to do. Uh, this is two stagely squares, and uh, in all statistics, the devil is definitely in the details, and so I sort of hope you don't look at the book. <laughs> but... I can estimate each pathway separately, and among colored people, there's virtually no causal influence of reconciliation to truth, but there is a fairly strong relationship from truth flowing to reconciliation. The same is true for uh, South Africans of Asian origin. These are Indian people, mainly in KwaZulu-Natal. Nothing from reconciliation to truth, but at least a modest relationship from truth to reconciliation. And then among white people, uh, the findings are a bit different. Reconciliation did indeed seem to cause truth, just as truth seemed to cause reconciliation. And I actually think that that's a perfect depiction of what happened among white people in South Africa. It is true that, that more uh, favorably predisposed listened in the beginning, but they learned more. It was a dynamic unfolding process that took in ever wider portions of the white community in South Africa. And so uh, um, um, I actually am willing to accept, I guess that's gracious of me, but I'm willing to accept the statistical analysis. So uh, at least uh, uh, un for some groups, I think there is in the book, through this and other forms of analyses, evidence that truth actually caused reconciliation. Now, how, through what process did this take place? I think it's, try to, it's important to try to unpack these coefficients. And that's difficult to do statistically, so I've done it with a thought experiment. These are cross-sectional data. 
I'm trying to make longitudinal inferences, so that's a big problem. There are no longitudinal data available. So I started by uh, trying to imagine what opinions might have been like in South Africa in the 1980s and early 1990s and how they might have changed. In the 1980s, uh, racial polarization, of course, characterized the country. Whites thought that they were engaged in a battle against uh, terrorism and, more importantly, perhaps a battle against communism and especially godless communism. There's no doubt that the ANC and Nelson Mandela were terrorists. And it sort of reinforces the, the old truism that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Uh, Mandela ordered attacks on uh, civilian populations in the 1980s. So most whites in South Africa almost certainly believed that the war against the liberation forces was a just war. Black attitudes were also unconducive to reconciliation. Apartheid was seen as the ultimate evil. After the Constitution of 1983, blacks were disenfranchised and were sent to live in the Bantu stands through forced removal and ethnic cleansing. So blacks, too, thought the, the war against apartheid was a, a just war. Under these conditions, I think it was essentially impossible for... Um, uh, for reconciliation to, to take place. Then came the TRC. You know what the most important lesson of the TRC was? It wasn't that apartheid was a crime against uh, humanity. It was the lesson that both sides did horrible things. Now, be careful. Neither I nor the TRC argues that both sides did horrible things with equal frequency or ferocity. But the TRC was willing to blame human rights violations, irrespective of the motives behind those violations and irrespective of, um, of, um, of who engaged in them. Whites learned about this. They learned about Eugene de Kock and the secret war that the government uh, funded against the uh, liberation forces. This is a, a, an exchange, a sort of interesting exchange from a white focus group I ran. <clears throat> and here are white people talking about what they knew about uh, 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 the system. Yes, all these things, when they came out at the TRC, I thought, my God, where was I living? Was that in South Africa? The whites, you, you didn't know any of that was going on. You looked on apartheid and you were comfortable because you could go to the shops and go where you liked. Yes, they were happy referring to blacks. We were ignorant in a sense of knowing what actually went on. We can fight about whether whites should have known, but I'm absolutely convinced that they did not know, and therefore the TRC generated an enormous amount of uh, new uh, information uh, for them. Blacks, did they know about this? Of course they did. They were living in it on a, on a daily basis. Uh, and that's why, in fact, the, the relationship between truth and reconciliation is much weaker for blacks than it is for the other uh, three groups. But many of the allegations and discussions of the 1980s were dismissed by black people as products of government misinformation. Uh, few knew or acknowledged how widespread the atrocities committed by the liberation forces were in the 1980s. I'm talking about necklacing. I'm talking about the fact that the ANC essentially lost control of the movement in the 1980s, and it was co-opted by a great deal of, of gangsterism and, as I said, uh, terrorism. Uh, 
You can see this in a black focus group that I ran. This is the moderator. She says, those struggling for and against apartheid did terrible things to others. What do you think of that? Then the participants. It's very true. Both sides have blood on their hands. Even the so-called liberators had very inhumane methods that they used when they wanted to put through a message. A lot of people were hurt in the townships. It's true. Both sides did bad things. And then I could have kissed the woman when she drew this conclusion. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right. So if you accepted the position of the TRC, you might have come to see the struggle over apartheid as one of pretty good good against pretty bad bad, not as one of infinite evil against unremitting good. It's hard to reconcile with infinite evil. What I think happened is all sides saw themselves as compromised by the revelations of the TRC, and therefore that opened the door to reconciliation. One of our best human rights guys, Michael Anatyov, uh, made the statement, all that a truth commission can achieve is to reduce the number of lies that can be circulated unchallenged in public discourse. What he might not have realized is that the elimination of lies is a crucial first step in the road to reconciliation. Now, the question of the cross-national generalizability of the findings, I think, is an important one because, as you probably know, the South African TRC is held up as a model around the world for people to uh, emulate. So I've tried to extract some lessons from uh, the findings of that book and in, in, actually in sub subsequent uh, papers, and I've identified a number of things that I think we can attribute, uh, institutional things that we can uh, point to as uh, causes of the success of truth and reconciliation. <coughs> Remember, I'm after societal transformation. I think it axiom axiomatic. If you're going to try to transform a society, you've got to go and talk to people throughout the society. Many truth commissions around the world have sat in the capital cities and brought people into them. The TRC did not. It went to every nook and cranny throughout uh, South Africa to take testimony uh, from victims. Media coverage was extraordinary. The most popular show on TV for five years running was uh, a weekly report on the TRC. TV is unimportant, generally speaking, in South Africa. Radio saturated with the uh, TRC. And all of the information was extremely biased, but it was biased in favor of the process instead of against it. I think a crucial element here is non-legalistic hearings. Now, I don't deny for a second that a ton of due process is lost when one abandons legalism. But trials are very difficult for people to follow. It's much easier when victims are given a microphone and allowed to uh, simply report uh, their stories. These messages are, are subtle, they're not strident, and therefore they were extraordinarily persuasive. They're, you know, they caught the uh, attention more of South Africans than the cricket ever would. God knows why they like the cricket. Huh? <laughs> Without amnesty, these stories couldn't have come forward, it seems to me. And that's a very important part of the uh, process. A second is the uh, impartiality of the commission. It was transparent and it was reasonably fair. And the evidence for this is that every political party sued the TRC in the publication of its report. They're very proud of that, actually. 
This is a tutu, and he's delivering the truth to Sheriff Mandela. And you can see the arrows are from the National Party, from the African National Congress, from the Inkatha Freedom Party, from the Pan-Africanist Congress, from the Freedom Front, and from others. As I say, they, are, they wear this as a badge of honor that every major party sued to prevent the publication of the report. But also the message, I think, was incredibly important, and that is to say uh, blaming all sides. The TRC was definitely accused of poisonous even-handedness, and by that I mean uh, betraying the movement in its even-handedness. But even poisonous even-handedness is impartiality, and I think that had a gigantic uh, impact on South Africa. Uh, the, the, they argued that all people, all elements did bad things and should be held accountable and therefore established their impartiality, which contributed to their legitimacy. They did some things that undermined legitimacy, to be sure, but impartiality contributes to legitimacy, which creates credibility, and it allows ordinary people to accept the message, be persuaded, and rethink their views about the apartheid system. The process also succeeded in overcoming the justice deficit. Amnesty generates a retributive justice deficit. By that I mean you don't get your revenge. But the process was enormously successful in compensating for the lack of retributive justice. It did so with procedural justice. It did so with distributive justice, paying people. And it did so, so with restorative justice, uh, which is largely the process of apology. So the compensatory justice mechanisms made up for the fact that there was no retribution and generated acceptance and um, satisfaction with the process. You can't say enough about uh, leadership, the roles of, of course, uh, Tutu and uh, Mandela. So all one needs to succeed, if you're in the business of setting up a truth and reconciliation process, is five or six years, hundreds of dedicated people, millions of dollars, and I'm talking millions, an open and transparent process involving tens of thousands of ordinary citizens and a couple of saints to boot. If you have those, I guarantee that you can succeed. I say that facetiously because everything came together in South Africa. I think these are important lessons that uh, truth commissions around the world should uh, consider. Now, <clears throat> we have one little problem here, and that's causality. What I just said uh, uh, actually was moving the level of analysis up to the system, no longer the individual, right? It's talking about uh, what the uh, causes of success at the system. Uh, and therefore, the problem of indigeneity arises. And by that, I mean the problem of the truth and reconciliation process being a dependent variable rather than an independent variable. This is an argument that's made forcefully by uh, Jack Schneider and uh, Leslie Vinjamori who argue that truth processes are endogenous, not exogenous. Now, causality is, uh, as I've said before, causality is difficult. I mean, South Africa is an interesting country. Uh, I work in a place where the president says that HIV does not cause AIDS, 
and the Catholic bishops say that condoms do. So you've got to kind of figure out your standards on causality. But nonetheless, I think it's quite legitimate to uh, propose that the TRC actually reflects something about the South African culture, and it's those factors that gave rise to its success, not anything that's peculiar to the TRC itself. That's important because if that's true, the TRC is superfluous, and the lessons that I would seek to draw from the commission are uh, uh, spurious and therefore uh, should not be replicated elsewhere. So I've actually, I've, I've uh, you know, debated Jack and Leslie on this issue uh, many times, and I've thought about uh, factors that are even further exogenous into the model, and I uh, have identified a handful that I think are important. First one will surprise you, and that is support for the rule of law. South Africa is a remarkably rule of law country. Now, you'll probably find that hard to square with apartheid, but if you think about apartheid, it was a system of legal regulation. Illegitimate to be sure, but procedurally correct in virtually every single way. I'm always impressed. If you read Mandela's autobiography, you know, Mandela's in Robben Island and in prison, and so they complain about the food. So what do the authorities do? They have a hearing. They bring a judge down from Joburg, and they set up a hearing. They take the testimony and then declare that the food's fine. But nonetheless, they have the hearing. <laughs> the proceduralism of the South African uh, uh, legal and political culture, the commitment to universalism, I think is uh, something uh, that uh, made the TRC, uh, the TRC's claim that all sides did uh, bad things and all sides should be punished uh, acceptable. I haven't done a study of uh, the comparison, but if you look at the Ravonia trials when Mandela and his colleagues were sentenced to prison and compare them to Stalin show trials or telephone justice anywhere in, in uh, the uh, former Soviet Union, uh, the procedural difference is indeed uh, stunning. Uh, Evan Lieberman's published a book about the amazing ability of the South African state to raise taxation, to, ra you know, to implement taxes. It's very much the same thing. I think a second factor is political pluralism. Uh, experts probably don't realize this, but of course every group is badly split. Whites are split between Afrikaans speakers and English speakers, and boy, that you can see that in the data on everything in this. Uh, Afrikan, Afrikaners believe that they were put in concentration camps by the British after uh, the Boer War, and there's a, a lot of conflict. Among blacks, of course, the conflict between ANC and Nkatha Freedom Party is intense, and most of the violence in the history of South Africa, most of the political violence has been black on black. Instigated by whites, to be sure, through the third force, but most of it has been black people killing black people. Colored people are a, a heterogeneous category, divided principally by language, Afrikaans versus English. And Indians are fairly homogeneous, but nonetheless they're you know, 1.8% of the population. So there's a great deal of pluralism in South Africa. I don't know, maybe some of you all know better than I, but I bet the density of NGOs in South Africa is as high as it gets anywhere in the world. And then you add to that vigorous international uh, press coverage. I bet you all don't know a whole lot about Namibia because the, the things that happen in Namibia don't make it into any of our newspapers, but boy, they surely do about South Africa.
All of this scrutiny made it, in my view, extremely difficult to implement a form of victor's justice. Uh, amnesty is definitely important. For uh, uh, Schneider and Vinjamari, amnesty has the beneficial effect of disarming spoilers. The, uh, that is to say, the uh, armed groups from the ancient re regime uh, get to go away and uh, have their beer and their rugby. So uh, I think that's important. But I also believe that amnesty is uh, an essential process to allow people to, to get their stories out. The extent of injuries. South Africa is not Rwanda. It's not Bosnia-Herzegovina. It is a system in which 21,000 victims of gross human rights violations were identified. Now, 21,000 is, of course, a big number. But in the scheme of things, it could be seen to be a relatively small number, certainly compared to uh, Rwanda. Have a look. Oh, <laughs> Okay, good. I thought in fixing the thing before I, I screwed it up. Um, these are survey questions that ask people first the simple question, were you ever injured under apartheid? And you can see, yes, you can see that two-thirds of blacks in South Africa said, no, I was never injured under apartheid. Yes? No? Let, let me continue. This question said, were you ever injured or harmed under apartheid? When we asked them 10 specific questions thereafter, which range from having to carry a pass, which range from being denied education, which range from being denied the benefits of a diverse culture, very, very you know, amorphous things, specific but including amorphous, um, only 61% of black South Africans claimed any de degree of injury. Now, part of this is apartheid, you know, ended essentially in the late 1980s, not in 1994. Part of it is it's a young population. Part of it is it's an immigrant population. There are lots of explanations for this. But it seems to me that reconciliation is vastly easier when the proportion of the population who perceives itself as having been victimized is a relatively small uh, compared to other places. We're just starting a similar study in Cambodia, or at least we hope to. And Cambodia is a, a very, very different circumstance. It's much like Rwanda, where virtually everyone in the society has been victimized. Okay, then leadership, which I've already uh, mentioned uh, before. So if you put all these together in sort of a macro model, here's, I'll add all the elements to it. This is sort of how I see the whole process evolving. Yes, there are exogenous factors, but the truth and reconciliation process, uh, in fact, uh, contributed independently to the success. Okay, I've taken a lot of time, so let me draw some conclusions and then shut up. From the point of view of a society that abandoned a apartheid uh, only a decade ago, and a society in which virtually everyone thought a bloody civil war would have to be fought. I think these findings are remarkable in the level of reconciliation that they depict. I also uh, believe that there's clear evidence uh, from the book that truth actually contributed to that. And as I said, uh, absolutely no evidence that truth did anything to harm uh, reconciliation. 
Now, of course, it's premature to draw firm conclusions about the success of uh, democratic consolidation in South Africa because, obviously, that depends on a lot more than the views of ordinary people. Elites are important or so on. And also, obviously, the future of the country now turns, I believe, on justice, not reconciliation, on justice and social justice, and that's what my land project is about. Um, but it does seem to me that the truth and reconciliation process was absolutely essential in getting South Africa over a hump, this early uh, uh, first decade of democratization, to allow uh, democracy to get a foothold in the country. Securing a breathing space for democracy is crucial for attempted transitions. And anything that can uh, give democracy some time to germinate is well worth the process, uh, price. I think that's precisely what the truth and reconciliation process did. It wasn't the, uh, the uh, end of democratization, but it allowed democratization to go forward. So I think that while the evidence is far from dispositive, there seems to be sufficient evidence, uh, logical, empirical, inferential, to conclude that the truth and reconciliation process did make a positive contribution to the transformation of South Africa. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Which failed, which failed, right? Yes. So he's drawing a negative contrast. Yes. No, no. Yeah. And when you talk about breathing space, what you're implying is to uh, try, to have tried Pinochet a decade ago would have been too dangerous, and therefore you need the, the time to sort. But later his, his trial Definitely. And if I may add a footnote to that, that could still happen in South Africa. People think of South Africa as a process of amnesty. It's very much a mixed process. As you might know, the entire leadership of the ANC sought amnesty. They were denied it. It's complicated. But in the end, they were denied it. So the, at present, the leadership of the ANC could be prosecuted. And there's a lot of talk not about prosecuting ANC, but a lot of talk about people who did not come forward for um, to get amnesty and to restart the prosecution process. Um, let me go to the uh, first question, the finding out about and, and the learning. Uh, in my view, um, there was very much learning going on. Why people didn't know about the secret war, uh, Bassam, the chemical warfare against um, uh, the ANC. 
Uh, they didn't know. Uh, most uh, of the South African government, I'm sure, did not know. It was a secret war. And so these revelations were, had an extraordinary impact on white people because they never could have believed that their own, the moral foundation of their own government was completely undermined by the revelations of the TRC. So I'm certain that, uh, that whites and coloreds and Indians uh, uh, got new information that caused them to change their views of the entire process. For blacks, as I said, there was so much misinformation swirling around in the 1980s. Ascari are these uh, spies that the uh, government uh, established, informers and stuff. No one ever knew what to believe. The leadership of ANC was outside of the country. There was chaos everywhere. So what I think happened is that the TRC validated a lot of the abuses that took place on the part of the liberation movement and made people, black people, come to accept that, in fact, that was not misinformation, but, in fact, did occur, and therefore, whites had some legitimate claims to grievances. Bombing at Magoo's Bar, bombing at uh, shopping centers, things like that, attacks on civilian populations. So, as I say, I think both sides came to see their own position as compromised to some degree thereby making compromise with the other possible. Catherine? Okay, thank you. He brought up the notion of guilt, and you talked about how both sides were blamed. So I think, Mark, the question was, is it really truth to knowing or some acceptance of responsibility? Okay, individual acceptance. Uh, 40%, yeah, 40%, 40% of whites accept individual responsibility for the abuses of apartheid. That may sound low to you. It sounds extraordinarily high to me, extraordinarily high. Uh, if you take uh, uh, questions on affirmative action and other remedial kinds of programs, uh, whites are not uh, largely for them, but a very large minorities are. So there's a lot of acceptance of uh, individual responsibility. But I also think that because the whites think they were hoodwinked by the government through this illegal war, that uh, acceptance of responsibility is not as high as it might otherwise have been. You know, if I may, just really try to contrast this blaming all sides versus victor's justice, the Nuremberg model. And what I'm suggesting is that if um, a victor's justice model can't achieve the legitimacy that comes from the impartiality of blaming all sides, and that impartiality Lead, as I showed you, leads to the legitimacy, leads to the credibility, leads to the ability to persuade people. I don't think a victor's justice model can ever do that. I think it's way too contested. So the Americans, when they get around to the Iraqi Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I hope will not implement the Nuremberg model, but will rather go this um, impartiality route. Yes? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm interested. I, when I think of the uh, people who are, are, are uh, pessimistic about truth and reconciliation, when they're thinking the truth part, I think they're thinking about the rehashing of you know, the, the acknowledgement, the, con you know, the concrete, you know, uh, open yes. uh, description of the uh, uh, atrocities. Um, and yet the truths that you were uh, you know, assessing and entering uh, relative to um, reconciliation are the, are the abstraction that's, that's derived from that. Yes. Um, that is that after the concrete instances, 
have on both sides have you know, been, been exposed the, the three conclusions <laughs> uh, that you're calling the truth. Uh, um, I, and I'm wondering, if this uh, psychologically, how it, uh, that, that may be a, that an important step that you encapsulated but not explicitly acknowledged, and that is the movement from the acceptance of the facts <laughs> to particular abstract Yes. And that it's when you get to that point, step back. Let me say uh, in preface that um, a, a lot of times people don't fully appreciate the distinction between the impact on victims versus bystanders. So a lot of times the revelations that come out of, out of the victim testimonies were enormously disquieting to people and uh, made people very much anger, more angry, and all of that sort of thing. So unfortunately for my theory, of democratization, I'm willing to write those people off, the victims off. And that's a very, I should be honest about that, it's a very uh, 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 clear uh, claim that I make because the societal transformation is more important. So when uh, I work with uh, Jeff Sonis, who's a trauma uh, physician at uh, North Carolina, we're doing the uh, North Carolina Truth and Reconciliation Commission now. And Jeffrey disagrees with a lot of this, but he's looking at the victims and the impact of these hearings on victims and victims' families. And I'm looking at the impact of the hearings on the opposite race constituency. It, what I care about is white people seeing a black woman telling about her husband having been killed and then bride, uh, put on a barbecue and burned. And the impact on the white people seeing that is what caused the transformation. I'm talking about black people hearing the story of, um, you know, police officers who were drinking after work and were blown to smithereens in Durban in, in a bar. It's that that led the uh, black people to recognize that their side was uh, less than... Um, so it really what this does is give concrete evidence of the legitimacy of the opposite side's claim. Now, we can talk about abstraction and cognition and all that, but that strikes me as raising all kinds of psychological barriers. You know, when you tell white people apartheid was bad, you were bad, blah, 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 that there's whole kinds of defense mechanisms that kick in that, that make them be resistant. When the message is subtle, when the message has no clear ideological content, when the message is unrebutted, when the message is entirely uh, uh, accessible to people, it's heartfelt, all that kind of stuff, emotionally engaging, then it's much more uh, persuasive. Yeah, I guess I, I certainly wouldn't say we start with it, but I was saying that having uh, induced that once those atrocities were 
Yeah. Um, Tim has had then Harwood and then here and then there. Absolutely. I think up until the time of the uh, South African TRC, there wasn't a commission that had succeeded in any meaningful way anywhere in the world. Could be wrong about that, but I think Priscilla Hayner, who's sort of the queen of all this, would make that argument. And so the South Africans looked at the earlier experiences. They looked at Chile. They looked at a variety of places, and they concluded that there had to be a broad societal transformation attempted rather than very narrow hearings focused on individual events. Okay? Now, uh, so therefore, the uh, legislation creating the commission has all this enormously broad language. I mean, literally, there's a big discussion of, of rule of law and human rights as a barrier toward the reemergence of authoritarian government. Okay? So I think the mandate was there in the beginning. I also think, however, that Tutu hijacked the process. Uh, in many ways, Tutu has been, uh, uh, in many quarters, bitterly criticized for turning it into a religious Christian deal with, you know, forgiveness and atonement and all that kind of stuff, when in fact that, according to many people, shouldn't have been there. So he's criticized there, but he's also not criticized for turning it into a much larger examination of the system and the society and how it should change. They had, for instance, hearings on the role of the uh, religious institutions under apartheid, the role of the judiciary, the role of youth, and, and so on. So it was very much a, a, a full society. Now, how they got away with it, South Africa is relatively wealthy compared to Sierra Leone, for instance. Uh, would I recommend that they spend such resources? Probably not. Oh, yeah. And that, of course, is one reason why uh, trials failed. The, there was an early on trial of uh, Magnus Milan, one of the generals under apartheid. First, uh, the South African government had control of the records from 1990 to 1994, and they made Enron look like pikers when it comes to shredding documents. They ran them full time. Uh, secondly, the state had to pay for the defense and the prosecution. This Milan trial went on for a couple of years, cost a million dollars, and he was acquitted. So that kind of, you know, made people uh, think that there are other ways to, that the process ought to. You know, I hate to rely on great person theories, but uh, a Tutu hijacked and Mandela allowed him to get away with it. Harwood? Everybody else, you know, they were expecting uh, 
But actually, I was curious about the idea of, uh, of truth and whether truth in South Africa, for instance, is treated the way it's treated in America, which is where uh, it's heavily contested at every level. So the idea of, for instance, uh, uh, like yourself, for instance, with a police profile, that was a black story told by black people to other black people for years, way before it ever made it to the national scene in the 90s. People started talking about it. And all of a sudden, so like, no, it doesn't exist, no, it doesn't exist, no, it doesn't exist. And then after September 11, we saw this huge reversal. It went from, yes, it doesn't exist, it does exist, but it's a good thing. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> we should do more of it. We haven't done it. As a matter of fact, racial profiling is the best thing we should do. Everybody should do it. And so, and so anyway, what my story is about, the, the fighting over each truth at every level. Um, and so, I was wondering what the police did that. Yeah, uh, there is a book by a woman named Jeffries who was employed by Inkatha that, and she wrote a book early on, uh, attacking almost line by line the factual determinations of individual cases. Uh, and so, at the level of individual cases, there was indeed a great deal of uh, conflict. But you know, this is perhaps one of the good things about not having trials. And what I mean by that is that the allegations go unrebutted in particular instances. Now, you can worry about due process. It, it seems to me if there's no penalty being imposed upon the, the people about whom the victims are speaking, that the consequences of denial of due process are less. They're not being imprisoned or anything. But because the, the, uh, the allegations were made in open forums like this with victims simply coming up and giving their testimony, there wasn't a tremendous amount of debate in the society over the details of individual incidents. So uh, absent that, people very quickly focused and elites encouraged them to focus on the larger issues at stake, the abstractions at stake uh, in the issues. Uh, and um, I think it's remarkable the level of consensus that you see on these truths among all communities uh, in South Africa. I shouldn't for a moment uh, downplay the role of Mandela in all this. Because all the while Mandela's talking about uh, tolerance, we've got to get along. Uh, when Mandela put on a, a rugby jersey, I don't know when, maybe 1995, 1996, rugby's a sport of white people. Mandela put on a, a, a rugby jersey at a game. There's not a white person in South Africa who doesn't know that. And so the, the context that's being played out of is that we've got to avoid civil war, we've got to learn to live together, and therefore let's try to meet on these relatively abstract understandings of our past rather than fight about uh, individual um, uh, concrete events. Yes? I'm intrigued by similarities and differences between these two cases, miraculous consolidation Spain, in my case, in South Africa. Yes. They both reached the same point acknowledgement that both sides were wrong, neither side was blameless. But they got through entirely different processes. Yeah. This is one where you go through this truth re reconciliation process where everything is out on the table, but through a process that is very, very 
carefully balanced so that there is no one-sided set of recriminations that can have polarizing outcomes. Yes. The Spanish response was different except in one respect. It was complete silence yeah, absolutely. on the part of all organized political groups and political elites. So there was an implicit but uniformly agreed to norm that no one would point the finger of blame at the other side. And whenever anyone did on either side, they were basically hushed down very quickly. It strikes me that clearly this outcome is essential to uh, democratic consolidation, but the process of going through this mm -hmm. truth and reconciliation uh, procedure has a lot of risk in it. I mean, you pointed out the uh, number of conditions that made yeah. it work. And had there not been that kind of careful balance, can you see that uh, there might have been some polarizing dynamic on the other side where, uh, first of all, the process would have been regarded as illegitimate, but also could have been a tool for polarization uh, between two uh, contending sides? Yes. Um, I think you've, um, you've uh, uh, put your finger on something that's incredibly important in this whole process. South Africa, of course, was a negotiated settlement between uh, uh, two sides, uh, both of which were too weak to win in a civil war. The ANC lost the support as a result of uh, perestroika, therefore couldn't win. The uh, South Africans had lost as a result of Angola and many other things, therefore they didn't think they could win, and therefore both came to the table. I don't know a lot about, say, the period of 37 to 40 in Spain, but it seemed to me that, that the, uh, the losers were vanquished completely in Spain and therefore had very little, uh, uh, very little ability to do much after the close of the Spanish Civil War. And so I think that that difference is incredibly important to how the process you know, uh, uh, Schneider and Vinjamori talk about these people as spoilers. They've got all the guns. They've got enormous resources. You've got to figure out a way to get them to disengage because you didn't beat them in the war. And under those conditions, then uh, truth and reconciliation uh, becomes a viable option for uh, solving that. I find it interesting. I don't know too much about the contemporary, uh, what's happened recently, but there is a movement in Spain for memorial and uh, to dig up all the old graves. And I don't know if that's a small fringe movement or, um, yeah, that, that was sort of um, uh, sort of my thinking. I, I think it might also really strongly emphasize the size of the victimization population as a, as a crucial uh, factor. Um, you know, if in fact what you're trying to do is convince bystanders of the legitimacy of that process, that's a hell of a lot easier than to convince the people of Rwanda, um, virtually all of whom were, were victims, and uh, that makes a, a great deal of difference. Uh, yes? If we're going to take your model for all lessons from it, the most important thing I would say is this universalism establish a rules of human rights and cast the blame wherever the blame seems appropriate. The second thing I would say is talk to the people. Don't make it a legalistic process. Make it a process of trying to persuade the citizens of the country to go forward, to put the past in the past, and to go forward uh, with tolerance. And I guess the third thing is, you know, I really would push this tolerance. I think Dick said uh, respect. People in South Africa don't respect each other. Tolerance doesn't require respect. 
it seems to me. We don't have to uh, 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 give an ounce of legitimacy to the positions of our enemies so long as we're willing to agree to compete by the rules of the democratic game. It's like the outcry over the cartoons, right? Um, I think it's absolutely, in my opinion, absolutely appropriate for the government of Afghanistan to say we don't like this. We think you guys are jerks for doing it. And it's absolutely appropriate for uh, Denmark to say we can't control the press. So we don't have to, uh, to fight. We don't have to respect each other. All we have to do is agree to fight according to the democratic uh, rules of the game. That's sort of a, a digression. The most important thing is uh, impartiality, legitimacy, and speak to the people. You've got to pay off the victims. You've got to do something to pay off the victims, it seems to me. And South Africa gave them compensation. Too little, too late, to be sure. But they gave them compensation. They gave them hearings. This whole story of procedural justice and giving the victims voice is incredibly I, I haven't said too much about that, but it's incredibly important to, uh, to give procedural justice uh, to the victims. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, Jack uh, calls it the uh, logic of consequences. And what he means by that is you've got to forget a lot about justice and fairness and stuff and figure out the way to move the society forward in a, into a more democratic future. Yes, you've been trying for a long time. Um, first of all, a comment about the rule of law. And I can't imagine another society ever where a bunch of black prisoners complain about food. And the response is, and actually I know a lawyer who was involved, uh, was not only a trial where the black prisoners got any input as to who the judge would be. They got to strike certain judges. The government paid for yeah. their attorneys, paid for dietitians and newspapers nutrition experts to come in and testify, and then, not surprisingly, the judge ruled that the food was fine, and the prisoners accepted it. The, yeah. uh, uh, the uh, starvation strike stopped, the uh, food riot stopped, and they basically accepted it. So the rule of law was very strong on both sides, yeah. and I can't imagine too many other instances where that ethic is prevalent. I Having even. said that, now my question is, you've opened it up in response to or a follow-up to Alan's question here is, uh, can, and secondly, put your crystal ball on, or look at the crystal ball, will a TRC work in Iraq? Right. And then, I guess, you don't need to go all the way to a Nuremberg. The two polars, as you point out, you can still have compensation. It's not the wrongdoers aren't punished, but the victims can get some kind of compensation about whether it's sufficient or not, but that's different than true retribution or education, so at least monetary compensation. Yes. Um, let me first make a, just a little footnote about uh, this rule of law. I mean, obviously, uh, Tocqueville was wrong on this issue because it seems to me absolutely clear that the rule of law can serve autocrats perhaps not as well as Democrats, but it can certainly serve autocrats. And I think that's a very important lesson to come out of uh, the South African experience. It's not a, a, a panacea. You know, I, I know so little about uh, Iraq, um, um, but let's play out the rule of law logic. Um, the rule of law logic relies on universalism, it seems to me, versus particularism. 
It may have as its root cause a, a, a lot of interest in individualism. What I'm suggesting is there may be a whole set of cultural prerequisites to this uh, rule of law, and it may very well be that the Iraqi culture or different components of it don't necessarily, uh, uh, for instance, I'll show you how little I know. For instance, without a norm of equality, I don't know how rule of law can be firmly established. And my sense is that the cultural norms of equality in Iraq are round off to zero. I could be wrong about that, but that's my sense. And therefore, it becomes uh, difficult for that kind of system. Um, wasn't Larry Diamond just here sometime recently? He ought to be. Let Larry answer this question better than me. <laughs> Yes, you've had your hand up. Okay. Uh, say the last again. Yeah, and maybe not much good because uh, with, absent the consist, uh, consensus, the victims don't get acknowledgement of their pain. And the other, I think one, cons one consensus that's there is that we don't want to transform the society. We want it back. So it was back in the days. And so that's what we're Yeah, uh, isn't it the case that 80% of Afghanistan is illiterate? Yeah, so it strikes, I, I don't have a clue about how to solve a, a problem like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I can show my ignorance on a number of other countries if y'all want to. Uh, <laughs> Peru, back there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, how much you think this all has to do with um, public spectacle and display, like as you've already talked about as far as Mandela and the, the rugby um, shirt, as well as like his inauguration is a huge public display of sort of a sort of view kind of national event. Absolutely. And um, how much of like Tutu and a lot of the commissioners sort of made this equation between national reconciliation and the individual reconciliation forgiveness of the, of, the, of the victims in the testimony, and as well as um, in the transcripts of, of, the, um, of 
of this of these hearings, they uh, or Tutu specifically made this connection between <coughs> the, the individual victim and uh, the nation the nation as a victim. He said that we are all victims right. uh, a number of times in, in, in the transcripts. How much of sort of how the social transformation happened because of this sort of new national identity of, of that 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 happens at the expense of, of the victims that feel that many of them feel exploited by the fact that they weren't supported um, after they, they gave their you know few minutes of testimony and then there was never any like psychological support or anything like that given. Right. Um. A couple of things. Uh, I can't resist. Of course, the uh, you know the the uh, Mandela and the uh, rugby jersey is exactly the same as uh, Gerald Ford 20 years or 30 years ago in this country. You might remember when Gerald Ford, uh, every Hispanic person at the time in the country remembered that when Gerald Ford tried to eat a tamale, he tried to eat it with the t- with the husk on. And you didn't have to uh, to look at that picture very long to say the boy doesn't really know very much about Hispanic culture. These sort of symbols have enormous communicative uh, power, uh, it seems to me. And these spectacles of people out in the hinterland breaking down in tears and all of that kind of stuff, it's, you know, it's on the TV every week, and it's enormously engaging. It's like a national soap opera that goes on especially among white people who own all the TVs. And uh, then, uh, 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 but let me say something else about uh, a couple of other things. So forgiveness. I'm not at all convinced that forgiveness is a necessary element of this process at all. Many of the people who were most embittered say, okay, I've been victimized twice. I've been victimized first by the state under apartheid, and then secondly by uh, especially Tutu, but uh, uh, secondly, by the culture that demands that I forgive my, uh, the perpetrators. And uh, the argument is made, uh, I'm very much a minimalist on the requirements of democratic theory. I don't think we have to like each other. I think we can hate each other. I think we can wish to uh, eliminate each other politically. Uh, and so uh, people said, uh, uh, therefore, I argue, tolerance is a minimalist condition. You don't have to forgive. None of that's necessary. You have to agree to compete by the democratic uh, rules of the game. This ID question is complicated. I've written extensively about group and national IDs in uh, South Africa. Um, and, and maybe it's too difficult to, uh, to uh, capsulize. It is true that national identities have grown tremendously among people in South Africa. It is also true that every single group identity in South Africa is positively correlated with negative, with national identity, positively correlated with national identity. So they're not locked in zero-sum tension uh, uh, between uh, one another. And it is also true that a national identity has particularly strong effects in generating political tolerance, probably through the rule of law connection. So. All right, so we'll, I don't want to pick you up. This might be the last question. Uh, I'm from Bosnia and Herzegovina, and this part is very incredibly interesting to me because I know it's never going to happen in international right I, I looked at these, these exogenous and endogenous factors, and it seems to me that, is it safe to say that they're all necessary, but none of, none of which is sufficient? Absolutely. And it, it seems to me like a mixed group. It happened once. It's not going to happen again. In other situations, it's going to happen just 
it could very well be. Could very well be. Um, I, you know, um, I used to work in Bosnia Herzegovina, and we had a project trying to um, create democratic values among uh, school children. And the project got shut down in part because the questionnaire itself was too controversial. The simple asking of questions about uh, tolerance. Um, so when the these uh, there's no common uh, uh, basis, there's no authority. What's the problem in Palestine and Israel? Seems to me to identify an authority that would be recognized as legitimate by all sides is impossible. I think that's probably true in Bosnia Herzegovina. So I don't know how that process even gets uh, jump started. Uh, you probably know that Goldstone and a bunch of them are trying to get it. Uh, Richard was the, but. I, I see it as very difficult indeed. Whether it's unique to South Africa, I don't know. But we can certainly learn a few things, that if you're going to do it, you ought to try to do it in this particular kind of way. Well, I'm sure this is uh, not the last word, but the first word. It's been a <laughs> terrific uh, introduction to the problems we hope to now look at for about a year. So we're having a series of these talks. Many of them will be here, many of them will be current. Jim, I want to thank you. It was a terrific uh, Thank you very much.